Welcome to Obsidian Stories. I'm Angela Ford, founder of the Obsidian Collection Archives. This story is about a Black national convention that took place in 1972 in Gary, Indiana. There were a number of leaders who were saying out in the open, we're tired of going to funerals. And, 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 and lo and behold, one of the few cities that Dr. King never visited was Gary, Indiana and Gary, Indiana had a black mayor. Over 10,000 African-Americans from around the country gathered to create a black agenda for the national American platform. Let's learn about the era, the people, and the decision to aggregate the power. Hello, everyone, and welcome. I'm your host, Joy Weathers, and I am so, so excited to talk to you all today with our amazing guest about the Black National Political Convention 50 years later. Now, this is something that took place in 1972 in the amazing Gary, Indiana, but before we get into the details of that, I would like to introduce our amazing guest that we have today. Bishop Tavis Lane Grant II is the senior pastor of the Greater First Baptist Church in East Chicago, Indiana. He's been pastoring for over 27 years at the Greater First Church of the Northwest. Now, what I loved about this brother's bio is the fact that with the focus being on a unique community aspect, community with a conscience, intent to be culturally and socially Christ-centered ministries. So really pounding the pavement and putting in the work. Bishop Grant graduated from Benedictine University, and he's also done extensive theological studies at Hartford, Rutgers, and Princeton Universities. His ministering is known the world over as his pulpit has reached South Africa, Kenya, Nambia, Angola, Mexico, the Bahamas, and many others, as he is the founder and presiding prelate of the Antioch Network of Churches and Ministries. Based on his calling and his zeal to empower, he was appointed by Reverend Jesse Jackson to be the National Field Director of Rainbow Push. So on behalf of the Obsidian Collection and myself, I'd love to welcome the man who talks the talk and walks the walk, always saying that tough times don't last, tough people do. Welcome, Bishop Grant. How are you? Awesome. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you so much. So I am just going to jump right into it because this is something that I it really blew my mind and just learning more about this convention that took place in 1972. So I'm going to presume that you were, you know, a young man growing up in the area. Now, are you from Chicago or from Indiana? Like we would love to know more about that, like set the context for us for like the era as it was. Well, I'm I'm the uh, I'm the grandson of an Arkansas sharecropper who sent 13 children to uh, historically black colleges with a seventh grade uh, education. Migrated to Chicago. Uh, my father's a uh, Vietnam uh, War veteran and grew up on the west side of Chicago and ended up in Northwest Indiana pastoring and doing uh, social justice work, civil rights work for well over three decades. I think when we talk about the debt that is owed to our ancestors, that is owed to our family members that really instilled in us the importance of education and giving their all so that we can have a better opportunity. It's amazing to see that you come from such an amazing um, background like that. So looking at the climate of the Black community in the early 70s, specifically in 1972, 
especially coming off of what had happened in the late 60s with so many change agents and community leaders being assassinated. What was the air like, pretty much? What was what was the energy like? Well, you know, coming into the 60s, African-Americans migrated primarily from the South into the North as Lincoln Republicans. Uh, they they believed Lincoln freed the slaves, and so they had an they had an affinity and felt they had an obligation to support the uh, Lincoln Republicans. As at that time, the Dixiecrats uh, were this hybrid of militia uh, and Ku Klux Klan uh, and anti-integrationists, and so this emergence of black political social power was sparked with a shift in African-Americans shifting from being Lincoln Republicans to be Kennedy Democrats. And it swept the South because many of those persons left plantations to come to the Midwest and move and surge and merge into the West and the East Coast. And there was this new diaspora of black people uh, that were former uh, and you know former slaves, former sharecroppers, and aspired to pursue this American dream. And then you had the assassinations of both the Kennedys, the assassination of Malcolm X, the assassination of Dr. King. And it was as if we went through a decade of mourning and, and out of nowhere comes the Vietnam War. And so America is in a, a, a quagmire of social and global unrest. Uh, Dr. King died being vilified, being very much unpopular. Uh, and amongst his own uh, and misunderstood by those that uh, did not understand the King demographics in terms of Dr. King really being more well-rounded and more well-versed on the global impact of race and the economic residuals that people in, who grew in poverty, generations of poverty, had their right to economic justice as well. And so in 1972, there were a number of leaders who were saying out in the open, we're tired of going to funerals. And, 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 and lo and behold, one of the few cities that Dr. King never visited was Gary, Indiana. And Gary, Indiana had a black mayor. Well, you got to understand in that time that to have mayors had police departments, mayors controlled school boards, mayors dictated what happened at the county level. Mayors even impacted what happened at the state house, and so they have a black mayor in the heart of 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 all white Indiana was an oxymoron politically and socially, and these leaders came together from from Richard Hatchard to uh, Dr. Laurie, uh, Muhammad Ali, Minister Louis Farrakhan, uh, Dr. Shabazz, the the, the w- wife of Malcolm X. All of these leaders came together with this, this zenith of a thought. Let us convene to talk about codifying and monetizing Black political power. And that's where it all began. And I think you literally hit the nail on the head, the importance of understanding our power and when we're unified and really evoking change and how it gets something done. And even when you mentioned the leaders that showed up, these were of different um, religious denominations, maybe different ideologies, but to understand the importance of coming together for the greater good of the community and to find that baseline to agree upon is something that was really amazing to see, especially like you said, 
after coming off of a decade where there have been so many funerals and really just you're tired of going back and forth to the graveyard. Like, what are we doing this for? So in terms of looking at even just the logistics of holding a convention of this magnitude. It was said approximately, I believe, over 10,000 people showed up to Gary, Indiana. And from what I know from my history, um, Gary, Indiana has you know, always been like a working class environment or community. How was the logistics of this able to be facilitated for this to be a success? Well, you set the historical landscape. It is, it is two decades since the Supreme Court, Brown versus the Board of Education, and today, this Supreme Court, when it comes back in the session, will take a go at it, and we may lose Brown versus Board of Education. It was eight years since the Civil Rights Act that transformed Jim Crow across the South, seven since President Johnson even signed the Fair Housing Act, and all of these, you know, these hundreds and hundreds of people who came at that, you know, went well over ten thousand, brought black nationalists, brought Black denominational, Black entrepreneurs, Black artists like Harry Belafonte and Ron Dellums. I mean, there were historic figures that bought into this just simply by showing up. The question was, will we have more press than we have delegates? And will we have a fair representation of Black America? Now, you got to think, you got to realize at that time, there were 7.5 million registered black voters. There were 6 million unregistered black voters. And yet the margin of political power was somewhere between 15 and 20 percent. So the Democratic Party needed the black vote like never before. And that's what shocked the world, that they could, in fact, shift the political, social and economic landscape coming out of Gary, Indiana in 1972. And I think that's something that I I just can't emphasize it enough. And maybe it's because just watching Illinois come out of its own primary and looking at, you know, some of the, as the data is getting aggregated, but just looking at some of like the, the raw exit poll data, right. And just who showed up and who was, I should say more so involved in the primaries in terms of voting, Looking at 1972 and the fact of understanding the power and needing to shift the votes and needing to raise our voices, was that like really the focus and the main, I should say, agenda item of the convention? Or was there more, you know, maybe demands or more agenda points that really needed to be focused on as the community? Well, well, you know, one of the things on the agenda is still on our agenda now, D.C. statehood, D.C. statehood. They they on their agenda was eradicating heroin from urban centers. We we've been we we've been we've been fighting drugs for quite a while. Here's a new one: reparations. They were looking at what was happening in the African diaspora, in 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 places like Mozambique, in places like Namibia, in places like the Congo, where there were there there were civil wars that were being fueled by European powers and the United States itself. And they saw a need to connect with the continent of Africa and talk about DC statehood. They were talking about creating community-based health networks. Sounds like the Affordable Health Care Plan, also known as Obamacare. They were talking about creating a Homestand Act that would give back 
almost $52 million back into historically black communities because it wasn't just political, it was about economic self-determination. And so at the time, you only had 13 members of Congress. You only had one black U.S. senator who was a Republican. You had 873 black elected officials in 11 states and 20 over 2,000 statewide elected officials that had never been connected to each other. So to have all of these people from these various backgrounds converge and then have Coretta Scott King, the widow of Malcolm X, Walter Frontroy, Carl Stokes, you had this, you had this, 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 this power uh, 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 conclave come together like never before. Now, you go back to 1855, there was black political convention gathering there, 1871, 72, uh, and coming out of Reconstruction. But here in 1972, it was something that was jaw-dropping and eye-opening at the same time. Definitely. And even when you were mentioning just the agenda items, and clearly a lot of the same points that we are, you know, still fighting for, um, we could have a whole entire separate conversation just onto what is what has taken so long, or you know, why is the need? Does it seem like the needle is moving too slowly, or or how do we get even more progression um, in a more expedient manner? But there was a point that I would love to take back and just kind of unpack a little bit more. Your bio states that you, yes, you have dedicated your life to community service work. You know, looking at everything that was happening with this convention, was this something that you were actively a part of or was it kind of like that all spark um, that kind of got you started on your journey? What was it that really made you kind of like take the reins, as it were, with your own civic action? I'm a history buff and uh, um, uh, I, I was I was quite young then. Uh, and so, uh, my, my age and my, my, my historical appetite for the plight of our people speaks, uh, well of, of, of what I've been able to do. I studied and, and read and I, 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 I've worked with Reverend Jesse Jackson for nearly 40 decades, uh, four decades, but I, I met Walter Frontroy and Richard Hatcher and, and Coleman Young and, uh, you know, some of these persons that uh, I grew as a young activist, uh, as a as a, a young uh, college student, I met many of them, and so it materialized the history for me in more ways than one. In terms of of how it empowered me and gave me a sense of obligation uh, to pick up the mantle and, and go forward. We we've never had an era like we have right now with technology. Uh, with social media, with the the sense of of entitlement without obligation, and you talk about the past election, all all of the things that are on the table now are byproducts of the seventy two Black Convention, the John Lewis uh, Voting Rights Advan- Advancement Act, the George Floyd Justice Act, fifteen dollars, where Dr. King was talking about the fair distribution of uh, of income and financial equality. When you look at some of these touch points and look at how much wealth we've lost in the past uh, generation, look at how much access to capital that we've lost, while we're looking at the ballot box, where we're merging and where we must grow and elevate 
is get to the profit loss sheet, get to the dividends, get to investments and the power of divesting and really wealth building. This convention was the culmination of that. And a lot of what we are talking about today is not so much as new as much as it is a responsibility for us to finish the work. Could not agree with you more. And that's something even myself that I find equality is amazing. And I know we all want to be treated equally. I say equality is nice, but I'm about equity. Well, let me let me add to that point, because this convention uniquely in and of itself, you never had the combination. Listen to this. In the opening statement of the convention, this convention clearly said this is the convention of Angela Davis and Bobby Steele. There was this merging of black thought that is akin to what you just you talked about equality. We are we are free, but we are not equal. And they they talked about the potential of creating a black political power base where they would be a synergy of both Republicans and Democrats and black nationalists. You know, here in Chicago, we have Bob Starks and Conrad World, who's gone on to the other side. But these were intellectual. These were intellectuals that came out. Uh, when we look at a Kamala Harris and look at a Shirley Chisholm at that time, this was a political calculus for Shirley to participate in this Black political convention in Gary, Indiana, put her candidacy in a very different light because it was very clear you needed white votes to get on the floor of the Democratic National Convention to even see the day of light. And she took the moral calculus of aligning with that convention at that time, and history has served her well. So looking at Shirley Chisholm and the fact that even when she was running in 1972, it was under the slogan, unbought and unbossed. Was this something where it was, as you kind of even just said yourself, was it imperative for her to be at this convention or did it kind of like, I don't know, do you think it, it might have affected her perception amongst the black community if, if with her not being in attendance or was it something that it's like it didn't matter either way? I, I, don't, I don't think you could have had a slogan like she had and not show up uh, because Angela Davis showed up. The, the, the ex-wife of Malcolm X showed up. Coretta Scott King showed up. You know, black women today are talking about being queens and being the boss. Shirley Chisholm was the boss of the boss. She was she was a godmother. There was a godfather. She was a godmother mother of, of, of black black women, black femininity being being bossed in terms of uh, having the courage. Again, there, there was this sense in black leadership, not who is going to be the next black leader, but who's going to be the next one assassinated. These men and women lived under a constant death threat. In our nation, even today, there's still 5,000 unsolved lynchings. So when we look at Highland Park, we look at mass shootings in Gary, Indiana, in Philadelphia, in Atlanta, we see a young black male shot at 100 times, hit 60 times in Akron, Ohio, from Trayvon Martin to Emmett Till. Black leadership has always lived under this shadow of the what if. On one hand, what if I live and make it? Or what if I die in the process? Shirley Chisholm threw caution to the wind and took that stage and walked very proudly with a great deal of dignity 
and a great deal of elegance as a, a as a African American woman that now her legacy is in the White House emanated through Kamala Harris as the vice president of these United States. Definitely. And I think like it, it does serve as, you know, the stepping stone for the next generation. And even speaking to that, like coming out of the convention, a lot of those change agents who might have been younger or were affected by it, they went on didn't even run for mayors or for political positions in their own city. Like, can you expound upon maybe some of those individuals and their own legacies that were built upon based on the convention? Well, you take a couple, uh, Coleman Young. Coleman Young came out of that that Richard Hatchard uh, a season of Carl Stokes taking over major metropolitan areas where African-Americans population at that time was just over 30 percent. And you can see the maturation of black political power from Coleman Young in the north to Maynard Jackson in Atlanta. There's a generational disconnect uh, with our millennials who think that, that Atlanta just started in the past 20 years. It has really been a culmination of historical black colleges, historically black wealth, historical black intelligentsia, where in many places like Memphis and Raleigh and Jackson, Mississippi and Mobile, Alabama, Selma, Alabama, Jacksonville, Florida, Miami, you go all throughout the South from Houston to Dallas to San Antonio, black political power has grown exponentially. When when you think at the time of Dr. King's death, There was only a handful of black elected officials. And from 1968 to 2022, we have black political power from the local level all the way to the White House. That's a tremendous history and legacy that we must continue. And let's let's don't forget Kantanji Brown. Let's don't forget from, 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 from Thurgood Marshall, which was a historical appointment at that time, to Judge Thomas, <laughs> but, uh, 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 you know, to Judge Thomas, but now Katanji Brown, who in, in a, by her own right, when you look at her pedigree and her background, her profile, she is really a, 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 a organic development for us on the bench in, in terms of sitting at her age. And she very well can usher in a new day of justice for us. If we hold on long enough, we'll see our time and our turn. I will say that, you know, with Dr. Katanji Brown, I think that she does represent a lot of the tenants and even from her own bio and her record that definitely emulate those of the great Thurgood Marshall and the work that he did. Even the riots that took place in Cicero based on Patrick Clark, um, who was a Fisk University graduate, World War II veteran who just tried to move his family into the area. And actually, Thurgood Marshall wound up being the defense lawyer for the lawyer that represented the Clarks when the city of Chicago tried to sue them for inciting the riot. When I'm like, it wasn't their fault to begin with. So I think just like- Sounds like January 6th. 
Does it not? (laughs) Like very similar. So I think that that's something um, when looking at Thurgood Marshall's record of excellence and how he consistently was fighting for the community and for the betterment of us. I think that Dr. Katanji Brown definitely um, emulates that with her own record of excellence. So yes, so happy to see her putting on that robe and adding her voice to the justices as it is much needed. But even looking forward, And just as you said, like how, you know, people were inspired from that convention to even go and to, you know, begin their own um, civic careers and supporting the community. You spoke of the divide earlier, right? What would be needed right now in your own humble opinion to have that type of unity? Like, why can't we fill out the McCormick Place or the palace in Detroit or wherever and to have another convention or what would be needed for us to currently do that? Well, I think the timing is, is just right. Uh, we are on the verge of losing 40 years of civil and economic gains by a very egregious, very dangerous, very calculated uh, right political arm. And African-Americans and people of color and those who have benefited from our plight owe it to ourselves to really look at this season and ask ourselves, do we really believe this train can run on two rails or does it need to be a third rail? The the plight of African-American plight and power and empowerment has always been a third rail in American politics. It's akin to what we're seeing with Ukraine. China and Russia, the longer this war goes on, the closer they'll get and the stronger they'll become in their collaboration. Saudi Arabia is now becoming a global third rail. You can't move without them. You don't want to move without them. And if you do, you may never get a chance to to engage them again. And then there's South Korea, North Korea. We've got to look globally at our political and economic plight to the extent that we look at the best of what we have to offer, what we can do with it, and why not do it now? I think the climate is absolutely perfect for us to look at a means of codifying and uh, monetizing our Black political power, where on one hand, we know the the art and the science of politics, which is numbers, not just not just votes, but being able to finance our freedom, not only being able to finance our freedom, but being able to articulate what does economic freedom look for us, mean for us, social freedom mean for us, global and economic freedom that, that you and I and, 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 and this platform, we can go and get on a plane. We can fly to any nation on the continent of Africa. The question is, what are we going to do when we get there? There's amazing growth on the continent of Africa, and we only participate as tourists. It's time for us to participate as investors. I completely agree. And even doing deeper research, there's a lot of even programs that are now open up, you know, whether it's, I know it started off um, earlier with like the year of the return in Ghana, um, Senegal offering like opportunities to come back, not only just um, specifically within Western Africa, but then other, like literally the continent, different countries having opportunities to come back and engage, um, as well as the Caribbean areas too, Belize, um, Aruba, the Bahamas, Barbados. So, Completely agree with the point that 
we can't just be there to, to take the pretty pictures and to be there for the tourist or the, the luxe relaxation. It has to be about us empowering one another and supporting one another, not just only on a domestic level, but internationally as well. Um, so looking at the fact that even the Obsidian Collection has amazing images from this convention, what is it that you want the younger generations to know about this convention? And also, what is it that you want them to know about themselves in terms of empowering themselves to become change agents? I think the most significant part, uh, takeaway from the Black Political Convention in Gary in 1972, was a sense of self-determination. So much that happens to us in the culture is reactionary. And these were leaders who were provocative, but they also were proactive. They really seized a moment that spawned uh, a, a, a generation of people. For example, Karen Freeman Wilson, who's the former mayor of Gary, Indiana, first woman mayor of Gary, Indiana, but was a statewide elected official as the first black woman attorney general for the state of Indiana and is now the CEO of the Chicago Urban League. That's self-determination. One of the things I love about, about watching Eagles or watching Rockets, they know no limit. And we've gotten to a point in our black political progressiveness and economic progressiveness that we reach certain planes and believe that that is it, while others go as high as they possibly can until they've reached the point of no return. And so the, the tremendous legacy that this convention leaves is an opportunity and a landscape that says to uh, black millennials, not only is the sky the limit, the universe is the limit. And rather than talking about keeping it 100, we need to start keeping it 700. I hope you caught those numbers. And I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about James Bond 700. Keeping it 100 is the lowest score you could have in credit. Keeping it 700, nothing can be denied you. We've got to change not only the way we talk about freedom, but how we pursue it. And there's no better time for us to get it like now. I definitely, I almost made me go check my credit score. I'm like, wait, where am I right now? <laughs> like, I think it's good. I was like, I got to I was like, let me, I've been paying down this credit card. I know we're in a recession. <laughs> I was like, let me check my Equifax real quick or my FICO. But um, I couldn't agree with you more in terms of, of that. I think also something that I have been seeing more is, is just pounding the pavement, like really providing tangible opportunities, having conversations with, you know, with the kids, not only just of Chicago, but of all inner city or for that matter, rural environments. Like, I think it all just comes down to our babies just want to know that we care and that they have a voice and that they have direction or something to actually like look up to and that they do have a voice that matters. So I think seeing more community engagement actually like going into the neighborhoods, I think that's something that really has been making a difference, but it's something that we have to continue to do. And it's not easy, you know, and it doesn't just happen necessarily saying, oh, I had one conversation, you know, with the kids on the block, I, I'm, I'm fulfilled, like I've done my, no, it's continuous effort in order to get the community on all levels engaged. Um, 
And that's something that I think even earlier you said that really stuck out to me was like, it was a convention of not only the intellectuals, the nationalists, uh, the creative arts, every aspect of blackness, you know, not everyone is W.B. Du Bois saying, no, the pleasure is all Harvard's, you know, for me to go here. Some of us are Fannie Lou Hamer. That's like, look, I'm a country black woman. I may not have the highest education, but I know that something needs to change and that I matter. So I think us unifying on all levels of that is what really makes a difference. And, and knowing the fact that also, if nothing else is for sure, people know our political power and people want our money. So I think those are two biggest things right there that, that definitely I took away from looking at the convention and from this conversation. Well, let me tell you something. If, in fact, we seize this opportunity in and of ourselves with our consumer power, we would rival the one and two top nations in global GDP, which means that we would be a world economic force to contend with. You can't do anything in entertainment without us. You can't do anything in athletics without us. You can't do anything in medicine without us. Imagine how we have come out of and emerged out of this pandemic. It has been by black intellectuals in pharmaceuticals, in biology, in ecology that has brought about a means of survival and succeeding on the other side of this pandemic. The wealth that we have, mental wealth, financial health, wealth and social health wealth that we have is phenomenal. And if we were to seize the opportunity and do something that our ancestors have always done is take a risk, take a risk, take a risk. In some quarters that's called faith, but take a risk. The risk reward ratio that we're dealing with right now, losing so many lives in black on black crime, losing so many lives from the prison pipeline, losing so many lives with health disparities, we have no choice but damn the torpedoes and move forward. Could not agree with you more. And on that note, I am going to wrap up this phenomenal interview. Um, Bishop Grant, it has been an honor to speak with you. You clearly are a walking Rolodex and encyclopedia. So like I hate just the wealth of knowledge that you possess, but also the passion that you have for the community is just so, so readily apparent. So thank you so much for taking time to speak with me on behalf of the Obsidian Collection. Tell Angela Ford I hear the drums of Lou Palmer in my background. <laughs> yes, I, <laughs> I will definitely let her know that, sir. Um, but no, this has been an amazing conversation and thank you so much for having it. Thank you. Immediately after the convention, many of the attendees returned to their homes and ran for public office. The following year, 1973, Eight black mayors are elected, among them Maynard Jackson of Atlanta, Georgia, and Coleman Young of Detroit, Michigan. There were 33 black mayors elected in the 70s, including 1978's Lionel Wilson. He became mayor of Oakland, California. And now, 50 years later, progress has been made, but there's still much to be done. I hope younger generations learn more about this event to understand the elders did amazing things to pave the way. 
the young ones must carry the torch further. Our journey of black excellence continues. I'm Angela Ford, and thanks for listening to another Obsidian Story. Thank you.